one way to ask it is to say, imagine that I told you that for sure you would get sick in a month. Would you now want to take the vaccine or not? And if you do, maybe the vaccine is less troubling than the, the illness. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. As more and more Americans get vaccinated against COVID-19, top officials are predicting that life will return to normal by this summer. But now a new public health threat is emerging. People who simply refuse to get vaccinated. Vaccine hesitancy may soon become a leading risk factor for getting infected by COVID-19. Vaccine hesitancy has taken on a striking partisan dimension. In a recent CBS News poll, a third of Republicans said that they would not be vaccinated, compared with 10% of Democrats, and another 20% of Republicans said they were unsure. Why are some people hesitant to get vaccinated against a deadly disease, and what works to change minds of those who are reluctant? For answers, we turned to Dan Ariely, a professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke University and a founding member of the Center for Advanced Hindsight. He is also a columnist for the Wall Street Journal writing on behavior change. Professor Ariely studies the irrational ways people behave and designs ways to make human behavior more rational. I began by asking Professor Ariely what is driving vaccine hesitancy and why there is a partisan divide. Well, I think it's driven by lots of lots of things. Um, I think some of it is driven by fear of vaccination in general, right? And uh, the, all vaccinations have some fear connected to them, including vaccinations that have been around for a long time. I think a second thing has been that this particular vaccination looks to people as if it was developed too quickly. So they're saying, what is this? We, we don't trust it yet. There's another group. Then a third one is this in general mistrust of the government. So everything that comes from authority, everything from a government, there's a, there's a mistrust. And then I think there's a fourth issue, which is not vaccine related at all, it's just a matter of stating ideology, right? It's just, it's like joining the army, right? You're doing it out of, out of belief. And I think in the same sense that there were people who said, we are not wearing masks out of belief in freedom and so on. There are people who are saying, we're not going to get vaccinated out of some belief in our values. Now, how exactly do we have, <laughs> have we arrived in a situation where Corona is an issue of, political party and how exactly we, we got to a situation where this is about, you know, it's not about beliefs in medicine, it's about beliefs in Republicans versus Democrats. That's a very, very strange thing. But we've had lots of strange division of opinions on along partisan lines, and this, this happened to be one of them. Oh, and you know, I think there's another one that that will become real. So right now, Right now in the US, uh, vaccination is really behind, right? Just just starting to vaccinate people. At some point, there'll be a substantial number of people who'd be vaccinated. And then there'll be a question of, do we open restaurants and to whom? And uh, will there be a green passport? And will some people get the green passport and some people not? And will they have different rights? Then I think you'll have another group of people who would say, I'm not willing to have my freedom 
curbed by, by green passport or by the need for vaccination. And then there'll be another reason not to get vaccinated. Well, so, you know, there is talk now in the public health community that we will reach a point, perhaps by this summer, where the um, one of the main drivers of sickness and death will be the division between those who are vaccinated and those who are not. So that the refusal to be vaccinated will drive its own little wavelet of sickness. And this is the part that I don't get, which is that you think of people acting out of self-interest, and yet here they're acting in a way that could result in getting sick or dying. Um, why so, wouldn't the fear of that motivate a change in behavior? Yeah, so first of all, let's put the corona crisis in, in perspective. It's a, it's a terrible crisis. Uh, lots of people are dying, I, I, but um, at some point, this will not be the main cause of death in the US, right? So let's, let's also remind ourselves that this, especially for young people, uh, they're much more likely to die from other things than from, than from corona. So it's, it's not as if it's in everything else, people behave perfectly rationally. No, you know, people overeat and people uh, don't sleep enough and people text while driving. It's not as if you're saying, oh, everywhere else in the world, in every other activity, people are perfectly rational. Just in Corona, they are not. So, so, so first of all, we need to recognize it's it's one of the human tragedies from many, certainly focal, certainly important, but it's one of many, right? Um, and it's not as if any of the other health crises are getting people to act differently. Let's just assume, for simplicity, that Republicans. <laughs> will not get vaccinated, Democrats will. I know it's not that simple, but assume it will. It means that Republicans will consume much more healthcare dollars than Democrats. Uh, and it means that Republicans will sadly suffer the negative consequences, both in terms of sickness and in, in mortality. So as you're saying, I mean, COVID-19 is a medical problem, but it is also very much a social problem getting people to act for the collective good. How do you think we're doing in general in the US in that regard? Um, leading the world from the bottom. Well, not really leading, but, but very close to that. It's, it's actually, uh, it's shocking how bad the US is doing. Um, and you know, there's not a single thing that the US should be proud of in, in COVID-19. Um, you know, some of it is understandable, like it's a big country. Uh, hospitals are far from some places. Um, the healthcare system has been private for a very long time and has not really cared about population control. Um, the, the nature of the states versus the federal government uh, is, is, is more complex than anywhere else in the world. But mostly it's been, it's been a travesty. Like, you know, you look at the percentage of people who got sick and died in the US compared to the modern Western world and nobody comes close mm -hmm. uh, to, to in, 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 a, in a bad way, I mean. Um, so it, it, really is, it really is very sad. And, you know, I, I think that part of it is, you know, the government and part of it is the structure and, and part of it is lack of trust and fake news. 
so I um, sorry for sharing so much of my personal problems, but um, in the last few months, there's been a group of people who decided it's, it's uh, I'm in charge of the, the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, there's there's some conspiracy theories, and it, it it according to some people, it's me and Bill Gates who decided to create COVID-19 as a fake uh, pandemic in order to sell vaccines in order to reduce population size. Mm-hmm. Uh, an amazing story, and there's the, I'm I'm learning about it, so I'm I'm listening and I'm reading and I'm going into some of the groups that these people have. So I'm, I'm, I know much more about conspiracy theories than I thought I would. Um, but, but if you look at the life of fake news and you say, where do people turn to? Um, I see these bubbles of information that are terrifying. And the people in these bubbles, I, I've talked to so many of them trying to change their minds, I've had abysmal success, abysmal success. Um, th- their beliefs are so connected and tied that, that no single point of evidence is, is getting anything to fall. In fact, every time there's a single evidence, they say, well, what about this one? What about this one? They just move from, from one to another. So I think, you know, if you think about, you know, who is listening to your show? <laughs> Uh, you say, who is listening to this media? Who is reading uh, medical journals? We think that there's some standard of evidence that everybody at some point will take a medical journal above the belief of a religious leader. Well, turns out not so much. And, so, and we have these information bubbles that are very, very tough to, to penetrate. This is something that... Uh... I know I am hearing more and more just in my own circles of someone who has a relative or a friend who is deeply convinced of conspiracy theories of some sort or another. Now, you are a professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke. And uh, it sounds like, I mean, do you find that anything, what works in reaching to people who are becoming mesmerized by conspiracy theories, by things that have no basis in fact. Okay, so, so I think that the people who are already in conspiracy theory are deeply in it. I think that's going to be very tough. It's going to be very tough. I think we should first focus on not getting new people in. Uh, in fact, the moment you and I finish this discussion, my next discussion is exactly about that. Uh, it's about how you basically take the opinion leaders of fake news and get them to reconsider the fact, not so much to persuade them, but to start to get them to be less vocal. You're uh, talking far. about the Alex Joneses of the world. And for that matter, just some of the very popular kind of right-wing media personalities, the Tucker Carlson's and Sean Hannity's. Yeah. So, so, you know, I'm, I'm a researcher, so I'm trying to understand the, the mechanisms and how to do it. But yes, I mean, eventually it's, it's about, it's about all, all of those things. But, but the question is the principle. Like you take somebody who believes in a conspiracy theory 
And now they become vocal. And remember, every time they become vocal, they get positive feedback mm-hmm. from this, right? So um, if you posted uh, something on your Twitter feed that said that you just interviewed Dan Ariely and he was a very nice guy, you wouldn't get any likes. If you would uh, post something, you would say, you know, you wouldn't believe this half-bearded guy I, I just met and what ridiculous, you know, uh, so on things he said, you would get, you would get some people to, to react, right? So we react much more to negative than positive. It's so interesting. Conspiracy theories get you to feel that you understand something that other people don't. You see the truth. It's all, it's all very exciting. So people not only believe in it, but they post a lot about it. So the, the thing I'm, I'm trying to figure out is how you get them to post less, uh, less about this. But but, but I want to say something about, about conspiracy theories. And there was a study a long time ago um, that basically asked the question of how can there be people who believe that they were abducted by aliens? I don't know if you, if you have friends like this. You live in Vermont, have to, no? <laughs> people who think they've been abducted by aliens. So there's a lot, there's a lot of people like this. There's a lot of people like this. And, and it turns out that it's a really interesting phenomena. So physiologically, one of the things that happen when we sleep is that our brain paralyzes our spinal cord. Uh, this is why your, your brain uh, sends information to the spinal cord. The brain doesn't know you're asleep. So the brain submits information to the spinal cord, hey, go walking, and then we don't walk. And we don't walk because we have this paralysis mechanism that is designed to let us sleep. Sometimes we wake up a little before this substance have expired. So we wake up and we're still immobile. I don't know if it ever happened to you. Ever happened to you? Where you wake up and you're paralyzed, basically? For like a couple of seconds, yeah. You can't move for a couple of seconds. Yeah. I don't know if it happens to sure. you, but it happens to lots of people. So that's one. The people who believe that they were abducted by aliens, this happened to them. And then the second thing that happened to them is they have a personality trait where they feel in in the picture, things that they didn't see before. So for example, if I show you a picture of a, a house and a tree and a cloud, and I take it away after a minute, and I say, after a second, I say, please draw it. If you also draw a sun and a door and a, and a, and a window and a little dog, you basically fill out the gaps in ways that were not in the picture. Then you have this property of filling up information that you don't see. And it turns out that alien abductees have these two attributes. So, so I think that people- so that they fill in, they fabricate details. You know, you fill in, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's fabricate, but, but you know, it's, it's filling in the, the picture. I mean, you can imagine how it would be wonderful if you were an artist to do this and how it could be good for all kinds of things. But I think that the conspiracy theorist what they see happening is they see a few dots here and there, and they make incredible connections between so, them. Let me circle back to where we began, which is a very practical problem of talking to people who say they do not want to get vaccinated for whatever reason. And I also will throw in people who do not want to wear masks, let's say. What works in talking to them? Are they... They may or may not believe in conspiracy theories. They may have some very practical things. For example, in BIPOC communities, there's a long and terrible history of abuse. 
at the hands of the medical establishment. So what works in communicating in these situations? Yeah, so it's not the one size fits all and it doesn't work for all problems. But for vaccinations, imagine a line between the people who hate vaccinations and the people who love them. The people who love vaccination, no problem. They'll run and get them. The people who hate them, really, really hate them, I would say don't touch them for now. For the people in the middle, one of the things we know is you should just make it really easy. What does it mean to make it really easy? Available, close by, you don't have to make an appointment. You want to make it even easier for them, make an appointment for them, right? Imagine you send everybody in the, in the country an email saying, you know, June 12th at 8 a.m., here's your appointment. So I think before we go and try to convince people who don't want to vaccinate, the first thing I would like to do is to make it really easy for all the people who are on the fence, make it easy for them. Then I think there's a question of letting the economy take its own course. Like you could I mean, say- I, I do just want to interject there. You know, it's, it's not so easy right now. We're operating in an environment of scarcity. We're managing enormous numbers of people. So there's websites to navigate there's age bans. So it's just out of necessity, sort of the opposite of what you are describing. That's right. Of course it is right now, but, but things are accelerating and we want to prepare for the time when there's abundance of vaccinations. So this is why I want, I said June, right? I didn't say March. Right. Um, but, but I think we should create a sense of scarcity desirability so that everybody who wants to get vaccine or is on the fence wants to get vaccine. And then I don't want to force the people who are hesitant. And I'll, I'll tell you why. One is I don't think it's, it's morally right. It's, it's morally complex, let's say, to force people. But the second thing is that if you force people to do something that they don't want to now medically, uh, this is not the end of the game. There'll be other things that could that could come up and, and we want, you know, what COVID-19 has shown is we want citizens to support each other and help each other. And if we don't get that, we don't have a functioning country. So even if we have some vaccine hesitant people, which I hope we'll have a small number of, at the end of the day, we also need to worry about cooperation and collaboration between the citizens. So uh, acting, Forcing people now will have really negative consequences down the line. So I would say, make it easy to start with, make it desirable. And then I think that as schools, restaurants, theaters will have their own rules about whether to open to everybody or, or just to people who've been either sick or vaccinated, people would make their own choices and will decide in the, in the right way. But, but I wouldn't... I wouldn't um, Anyway, so easy, number one, let the economy and social pressure do step two, and then don't worry yet about the real strongholders of resistance. So what would you say to a friend who is on the fence about a vaccine? This is just very practical, okay. personal conversation that probably a lot of people are having to deal with. Yeah, so the first thing, I'm saying is that realize that this is not the first vaccine we have created. 
let's look at the vaccine as the history of vaccine. There's been lots of vaccines out there. It's maybe the second most important thing that medicine has come up with after hand washing. And, and when you evaluate a vaccine, you can't evaluate this as the first one. Like, you know, in the same way that if you have a new car, let's say Toyota comes up with a new car, you don't say, oh my goodness, I have no idea, it's a new car. No, you have lots of histories of Toyota. You evaluate that car based on other Toyotas as well. The same thing is true for vaccines. Now, if you're worried about the RNA technology, take a different vaccine that is using an older technology. That's fine. But, but you can't say this, this vaccine. That's, that's number one. The second thing is to say a vaccine is about cost, uh, benefit cost analysis. What are you gaining? What are you losing? You're gaining safety for you and your family. You're getting peace of mind. Uh, maybe you're getting some side effects. Maybe there's going to be some, some negative consequences, maybe. But there's also cost and benefit for not having the vaccine. And now the question is, which one of those is better? So you can't say, you know, like I'm, I, I don't want the vaccine, and, but, and I, I want to get sick. No, I mean, you know, you have to, you have to weigh them against each other. And one way to ask it is to say, imagine that I told you that for sure you would get sick in a month. Would you now want to take the vaccine or not? And if you do, maybe the vaccine is less troubling than the, than the, the illness. And then the last thing is I would say, it's not just about you, it's about other people. It's about other people and the people around you and you have to consider them as well. And oh. that, has only benefit. There's no cost of considering the other people. Finally, as a student of human behavior, what do you feel like you know now that you didn't know over a year ago before the pandemic? I know I can be happy without flying so much. Uh, I know I can make, I can cook. I had no idea I could cook. Um, in terms of human nature, um, I would say, I, I don't think there's anything new I've learned in, in like I had no idea, but I would say that, um, you know, we, we, are, we are deeply social creatures. And I think the, um, the isolation, the helplessness, uh, losing, ability has been, um, has affected us all deeply. I don't think we truly understand the consequences of that yet. Uh, but, but I think it has shown how much we miss, you know, contact and freedom and ability to control our own actions and movements and seeing whoever we want. And everything becomes much more precious. Oh, and I'll tell you one other thing I've learned. I always thought I'm an apartment kind of guy. I'm realizing I'm really craving nature. I think this year of isolation is kind of, uh, you know, I've had some nature, but shown me that I, I really crave nature in a way that I, I didn't imagine before. So that was interesting as well. Hmm. Okay, well, Dan Ariely, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. My pleasure. Thank you very much. 
Dan Ariely is a professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke and a founding member of the Center for Advanced Hindsight. He also writes a column for the Wall Street Journal. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this in all shows at vtdigger.org slash Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>